Dear Heavenly Father, our hearts are grateful, especially today on this Sabbath day. It's wonderful to worship you. It's wonderful to wake up to new life, to know that this day is in your hand, and with everything we do, we say, we think, we can glorify your name. We want to do that, Lord. And this morning, we want to delve into the truth, the living truth, your word. And Jesus, because you are the living truth yourself, we want to behold you in your word. Because we know by beholding, you can change us. So please, Lord, change us into your image this morning as we focus on our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, this devotional is dedicated. I have to do that, dedication in the beginning. I dedicate it to all those who get up earlier on Sabbath morning. And I dedicate it to all those who are in exile. Young people, women, men who are in exile from their homeland. I dedicate it to you. And I have just only one wish. Have a safe travel home. We are called, we are chosen, we are committed. Now, when we looked at the Zacchaeus story, I heard I should pronounce it Zacchaeus, is that right? Ah, in the Greek it's Zacchaeus, so don't, don't worry. <laughs> when we looked at that, we, we saw that to be called means that you give everything to Jesus in the place where you are. You give your first, your last, and your best for Jesus. There's nothing in between. Oswald Chambers, one of the authors of a devotional book I like very much, said, put God first, put God second, put God third in your life. I think this is important. Zacchaeus is the one who shows us what it means to be called. Jesus calls him, and in this divine encounter, Zacchaeus was saved, and he followed him. And in the marketplace, he shared the gospel, and he spread the news together with his gifts. Chosen. Yesterday, we looked at why we are chosen. We are chosen to see Jesus. Probably the call, chosen, and committed theme has something to do with our Adventist message. But today I like to focus in the committed also on the same like we are chosen. Chosen to see Jesus. There is no higher destiny. There is nothing more important than that. We want to see Him. And we never should forget in our daily life what Jesus has chosen us for. And His desire is not yet fulfilled. Yesterday I didn't have time to mention that in the desire of ages, Ellen White describes this wonderful scene when Jesus comes to heaven. Uh, we had the privilege to translate that into German anew, and uh, when I came to that passage, it just gripped my heart. Let me read a few sentences there. All heaven was waiting to welcome the Savior to the celestial courts. As he ascended, he led the way, and the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection followed. The heavenly host, with shouts and acclamation of praise and celestial song, attended the joyous train. And then they drew near to the city of God. And you probably remember what happens then. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, 
and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Joyfully. Just notice how often joy is mentioned. Joyfully, the waiting sentinels respond. I, I just imagine them standing at the door of the New Jerusalem, and they say, well, who is the king of glory? Of course, they know who it is. But they do that to hear, says Elmite, the response, because that brings gladness to their heart. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, so lift up your heads, ye gates. And then again is heard the challenge, who is the king of the glory? For the angels never weary of hearing his name exalted. And the escorting angels make reply, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. And then the doors open. And I like how Ellen White describes that describes it here when she says, we have a burst of rapturous music. Jesus is moving into the city. But then it's interesting. He goes straight toward the throne of God. With all his people he brings in, with the first fruits from earth. And then he is there at the heart of the heavenly sanctuary in front of the Father, and he hushes the angelic crowd. And he has one question. You know what that question is? He says to the Father, You know, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Is justice be done? No, that assures me that his last plea in John 17, 24 is still on Jesus' heart when he comes to heaven. That's the first thing he presents to the Father, his desire that his followers will be there, and the ones who follow him because of the word of his first followers. Jesus' desire is not yet met. We are still here. So he still has that, has chosen us to be with him. Which brings us to the committed part. And I want to focus in a moment on what that means for us. But first, we need to say that Jesus is committed to his cause. He is committed to the justified salvation. He is not finished with his task when he died on the cross. He goes up there. He, he gives his father again his last plea, and the father says, it is okay. They will be there with you, with us. There is still work for him to be done. What's that work? I turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. I think this is a powerful message here. Since we have now been justified by his blood, amen? We are justified by his blood. How much more, and this is something Paul likes to do. It's a Jewish thing to do. If this is true, then how much more that is true? So first he says, it's true that we are saved by his blood. But how much more then? And then comes something else, which is still future. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And then in typical Hebrew parallelism, he says the same thing again with different words. Verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled of, to him through the death of his son. So that is in the past, reconciled through the death of Jesus Christ. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? 
Now let me ask you, what kind of life is meant here? This is a powerful message about the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Because the past is the cross. And now we will be saved through what? Through his life. Jesus' life committed to us as a high priest will save us in the end. Now, this has nothing to do with deteriorating the cross. The cross is the high act of salvation. But of course, it needs to be administered, so to speak, by the minister of the heavenly sanctuary so that we will be saved. We are saved, and we are not yet saved. We are saved in Jesus Christ. We have that assurance of salvation, and we believe it. We trust in it because He is committed to it. But we are still here. We are not yet there with Him. We are not yet home. We are all in exile in a strange land under enemies, and we want to be there. So his life of commitment as a heavenly high priest, that will make us sure <clears throat> that we will be there. And the result, <clears throat> excuse me, the result in Romans 5.11 is that not only is this so, but we also boast in God. <clears throat> this brings us to boasting. It's a glorifying of God because He will save us. We are committed to be thankful. We are committed to glorify Him. But His high priestly ministry is attacked, and I, I think you know that. And now we go to the book of Daniel, which is a, a book I think in the Adventist world is close to our heart. Daniel chapter 8. We go to that chapter in which the high priestly ministry in the history of the Adventist church to become is probably the most important verse. Daniel 8.14. And White said in, or writes in the great controversy, chapter 23, first sentence, the one biblical passage which is the pillar and the foundation of the Adventist message is Daniel 8.14. So we go there and I just want to read one or two verses so that we recognize again that we're speaking here of a heavenly high priest. It's verses 11 and 12, chapter 8. And I read from my translation. He, that is the horn, magnifies itself. Is that nice? Thank you, angel. He's a real angel. <laughs> Magnifies itself up unto the prince or the general of the host. The commander of the army of the Lord, it says here. And he, that horn, took away the tamid in Hebrew. You have to learn one word this morning in Hebrew. That's tamid. I will explain in a moment, okay? Just hold on. He will take away the tamid from this heavenly commander. The heavenly commander obviously has something which is called tamid. And then this power is throwing down the foundation of his sanctuary, literally from the Hebrew. So this horn is attacking the heavenly commander, the heavenly priest. All of this is in a cultic context. We read about a sanctuary. We read about the ram and the goat. We read about evening mornings, reminding us of maybe creation and the Day of Atonement, which the day starting in the evening. So in this cultic context, the term tamid occurs. Christ, 
The heavenly commander has a tamid. What is tamid? If you study the 104 passages of tamid in the Old Testament, which we will not do today, but you will come to one result, a very clear result. In 80 passages, 8-0, the word occurs in a cultic context, which means somehow in the context of the sanctuary, the temple of worship. And it always describes something which is done on a daily, that's why it says here daily, and then sacrifice, on a daily or regular, continual or permanent basis in the worship system of ancient Israel. And most often, almost always we could say, what is done is done by the high priests of Israel. This is so clear that at the time of Jesus, the word tamid became a short synonym. Just use the name tamid for everything which is done at the temple. The Jews would say that's the tamid service. Everything, the whole worship system of the temple is tamid. So if we see that Jesus Christ is taken away the tamid by that other power. That means that something is taken away which belongs to the high priest to do. What is Jesus doing in the heavenly sanctuary? Serving, ministering for us. Now it is clear that no power in the whole world can do anything to Jesus' high priestly ministry, right? I mean, come on, if he could do that, if we could affect that, we would kind of annul the cross or salvation. We cannot do anything. So why does it say in Daniel 8, 11, that this power took away the tamid? Well, the logic is obvious. In 11, first sentence, it says that this horn makes itself high up to that level of the heavenly high priest. It becomes a high priest itself. And by assuming the activities which Jesus usually does, only does, by assuming to be in his place, they take away the focus from the heavenly high priest. And this is a problem. This is so much of a problem that in verse 13, an angel cries out, How long, O Lord? You know these questions, how long, O Lord, right? We ask how long if something is not in order, if something is not how it should be. And go through the whole Bible, you will see always this how long question. How long, O Pharaoh, will you not uh, let my people go? How long, O Israel, do you stumble on both sides? Is the Lord God follow him? Is Baal God follow him? How long, O Lord, do you not do anything about this situation? It's the cry of the psalmists. How long, how long? And here it comes from a heavenly angel to the Lord himself. How long, O Lord, will you look and do nothing because you're to meet? is taken away. And the answer is, well, after 2,300 evening, morning, something will happen. That will restore Jesus Christ to the rightful place he has and where he is working so that other people will see. People usually miss that the word tamid occurs two more times in the Hebrew Bible. Well, if I say Hebrew Bible, it might be a little bit wrong in the Aramaic Bible, I should say. Because the book of Daniel is written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. You might know that. In chapter 2, verse 4, it switches to Aramaic because there... Daniel writes down, and the sorcerers or the wise men answered Nebuchadnezzar in Aramaic. And then Daniel, who knows these languages by heart, 
It just switches to Aramaic. And he does that until the end of chapter 7, until 728. He writes down in Aramaic. Now, in the Aramaic language, the, word, the Hebrew word tamid appears twice. It does not appear as tamid. It's a different word, tudirah. But if you look through all Aramaic translations we have in, for the Old Testament, we see that whenever tamid is used in the Hebrew Bible, and it is translated into an Aramaic Bible. It's always Tudirah. And vice versa, whenever Tudirah appears in an Aramaic Bible, it's always Tamid in the Hebrew. So we have a very rare one-to-one -one relationship between these two words in two different languages. Okay, that was the linguistic part for today. Which means, when we read in the Aramaic, the word tudirah, and you would know Aramaic and Hebrew by heart, you would think tamid. You get that, right? So now let's go to that two places where the word tamid appears in the, he in the Aramaic. And if you see that, that it is in the book of Daniel, and if you see the context where it appears, it makes perfect sense that these two Tamid occurrences in the Aramaic throw light on what is happening in Daniel 8. I promise, and the Bible hopefully fulfills. So let's look at Daniel chapter 6. These two words appear in chapter 6, verses 16 and 19. And if I read it in English now, you might raise your hand when you think that this Aramaic term for the Hebrew tamid appears, okay? I think you know already enough to say which word it is. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. So where did you put up your hand? Continually. Yes, there it is, tamid in the Aramaic. But you miss it because if you look in the concordance on the tamid, that verse will not show up because it's in a different language. But here it is. What is Daniel doing? He continually, he tamid serves God. Same thing in verse 21. No, in verse 20, excuse me. When he came near to the den, that's again King Darius, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, Damit, been able to rescue you from the lions? Yes, my king, he did. Daniel serves continually. He was committed to the cause of God. And this Daniel and chapter 6 is a historical illustration for the saints who experience the things described in chapter 8. Daniel becomes a role model of the future holy ones of the Almighty. Daniel becomes a role model of the future wise ones, of the righteous ones, of the many ones, of the holy people at the end of times. We should never, ever just read Daniel for the prophecies. We should always look at the narratives as well. The narratives prepare us for understanding how the faithful need to live and the prophecies of Daniel will be fulfilled. And here we have Daniel. What happened to him? I mean, he's about 80, what, 83, 85 years old at this time. I mean, you need to, to remember that. I mean, yesterday I met somebody who was 83. I thought he was maybe 55. Energetic Indian brother. Are you here? Wonderful. 
And here's Daniel. It seems to be he's an energetic guy. King Darius wants to make him first among the three highest officers in his kingdom. Incredible. But the other people have something against it. And look at what happens in verse 4 and 5. The administrators, the satraps, they try to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. Daniel is a businessman. Daniel is a politician. Daniel is, may I say that again? He's an earlier ASI member than Zacchaeus. He's right there. He, he's not a disciple following Jesus literally day by day. He follows him spiritually day by day in the office he has. What a wonderful testimony. I mean, do that. Be a politician. Well, I, I do not have to tell you here what that means. But they were unable to do so. They did not find any little bit against him. How is that possible? If you look closely through a magnifying glass at politicians today, this is, uh, this is an exemplary, high testimony they give to Daniel. It might be even a single testimony, a unique one. No fault whatsoever. And they tried hard, but they find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man. It's almost like the description of which Ellen White has for Zacchaeus is the one which fits him very well. Well, you read it up in Desire of Ages 555. It's easy to remember where it says, where Ellen White says, Zacchaeus is the exemplary businessman in his time. Everything what he did was marked by the stamp holy to God. If it was the ledger, if it was, let's continue, the check, the credit card payment, the selling of his business, the gifts, everything was stamped by holy to the Lord. And that was with Daniel as well. They could not find anything except if it has something to do with the law of his God this verse 5. And then they twist that and they make that trap which will bring a death sentence onto Daniel. And the death sentence is executed with a little delay. Does this sound somehow familiar to us? There's a government giving in, in good faith, a new law, and this law will affect the only faithful person, which is mentioned in this chapter, to the way that he will be put to death. And the government goes through with it. Because even if the king does not want that, he has to. It's the law. Does this sound familiar? That's nothing in the past, of course. That's the situation of the faithful ones in the future. So, what is happening then? Daniel Tamid serves his God continually. How does he do that? We read that in verses 10 and 11. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. 
And of course, the others reckon exactly with that kind of thing David, Daniel would do. They know. The others know that he would do that. The king knows that he is doing this because the king says later on, you continually serve God. The people know that we have a Daniel here who is loyal to his God on a tamid basis. It's tamid loyalty. It's worship. He is doing what, well, what an Israelite should do. The temple is not there anymore. He cannot go to the temple. He cannot sacrifice there. But he can pray. He does exactly what King Solomon prayed for in 1 Kings 8. In his, one of the longest prayers of the Bible, at the end of 1 Kings 8, Solomon says, if you lead your people into exile because they sinned, but if they turn their heart and they ask for forgiveness, they repent, they say, we are sinners, we are sinful, we, we, we put your law aside, and so on and so on, and they ask that toward your land, toward this city, toward the temple, then you here up there in the heavenly sanctuary, and you please forgive them. Daniel knows that passage well. It's his Bible. It's in there. And he does exactly that. Three times a day, probably the times when the daily sacrifices are given. Because in chapter 9, we see Daniel again praying. And it's the evening sacrifice, the time of that. Daniel substitutes the sacrificial worship with prayer worship. Prayer is a sacrifice to God. We do not need to say that to the Jews because the Jews believe that the humblest sacrifice, the littlest sacrifice that you can bring is prayer. And in time of the exile, you cannot bring anything else because you cannot go to the temple. Is there something in for us in that matter? We can pray. Our prayers are daily sacrifices to God. Are you worshiping your God? You pray. You pray on a tamid basis, regularly, continually. Did, did Christ say that? Please pray continually? I, I think he said something like this, right? How do you do this? Do you sit there and do this all the time and pray? It's a lifestyle. Lifestyle of prayer. Derek, I wish you would continue here. Radical prayer. What is Daniel praying? I find it interesting. It's not mentioned in chapter 6. It just says he's giving thanks to God. <laughs> Unimaginable. Thanks. He's giving their thanks. Do you think he didn't see the others around there at the window? Maybe he had his eyes closed in prayer. He didn't see the others. Come on. He knew exactly what was going on. Still he did it. Because he did not want to make another impression. Uh, if he would go behind the curtain and pray there, oh, he would have been fine. But he would have made a wrong impression. Even the impression was important for him. I do not want to make an impression that I am not loyal to my God under any circumstances. That is Tamid loyalty. Daniel is exemplary in that. What a wonderful follower of Christ. And that's needed for today. He is our role model because we are living at that time when Jesus Christ as heavenly high priest is not that well known to the world anymore to the world of followers of Christ? After 1844, as the prophecy says, this message needs to go out. And I'm very sure that Pastor Bradshaw in his sermon today will, will give us the call for the end-time people to proclaim this end-time message. So I'm not going now into that. Please forgive me. I'm just focusing on the loyalty which is required. 
the loyalty which comes naturally, as Paul says. We boast of this God. We glorify Him. We can't do anything else there. That's chapter 6. Chapter 6 shows us that taking the Tamid away in chapter 8 has also to do something with taking the worship away from Jesus Christ as high priest. What's the worth of a high priest if there is no people who look toward him? He can do all what he wants in the universe. It will have no effect. Because if the people do not consider him to be their high priest. And this is kind of the missionary statement of Daniel 8. It's not only a prophecy about the end times. It's a call for mission. There needs to be people who show again that there is a heavenly high priest. That he is at work. That he is committed to save us. Save us from judgment. Save us to eternal life with him at his place. I think that is what the word tamid implies. And we see that in Daniel throughout his book. Daniel 1, 17-year-old or 18-year-old young guy coming to Babylon, to that city which will soon become the world heritage of the UNESCO. And he's there, and everything just storms in through all senses of his. And he has to decide what to do. He's confronted with sin, with study, with identity, his name is changed, and with nutrition, sin. Is he being faithful in his studies? Today, universities might be very difficult for our young Adventists. Very difficult to keep on to the faith. It was the same then. But Daniel did. Identity. Who am I? <laughs> I'm in exile. Has God forgiven us? Uh, forget us? Forgotten us? Sorry. Are we there? And God is somewhere else? Nutrition, and you know how the story goes. Daniel decides in a single decision not to commit any sin. And you know what happens. This little decision had far-reaching consequences. His Tamid loyalty already at that time had short-term, had medium-term and long-term results. Short-term, like in 10 days, they look better than anybody else. You cannot tell me that in 10 days, with a, I hope that's correct, dear health brothers, that a vegetarian or a vegan diet in 10 days makes such a clear difference. I, I believe that was a gift of God. Could Daniel know that? Did he have an idea that these 10 days would be enough? And what about what he also got as a bonus gift? Look at this in chapter 1. As a bonus gift, God gave him understanding of visions and dreams of all kinds. Verse 17. Did Daniel know that if he is loyal to God, that he will get the gift of visions and dreams, which will, by the way, save him two years later and save the lives of all the other wisdom people there? And by the way, gives us the book of Daniel? Because if he had not that vision, we would not have the book of Daniel. Did he know that at the moment when he had to decide to eat from the king's food? Yes or no? Did he know that his name would appear in the book of Ezekiel? That Ezekiel, under divine inspiration, would say, if there would be a Daniel in this land, if this righteous young person would be here, God uses him as an example for his people who are still living there in Judea. 
Did Daniel know that when he had to decide, shall I eat of that food? Yes or no? Did Daniel know that 1844, a people would come studying his book, seeing what is in there, and being a prophetic movement, go ahead, preparing a world for the second coming? Did Daniel know that when he had to decide? eating of the food of the king or not. He, he didn't know. But imagine what God could do through that one single decision because of Tamid loyalty. And he was loyal from age 17 to age 83. I mean, everyone else here is hopefully somewhere in between. <laughs> or if you're older, bless your soul. We need to have this Tamid loyalty throughout the entire life. Why? Because Jesus is committed to us. He does everything to bring us there where he wants us to be. And we, I think he deserves our Tamid loyalty more than ever. Oh, if I would have time, but I haven't. I would have told you the story of Sarah Stricker and Michelle Bush. Does anybody here know that story? No? What shall I do? <laughs> I'm asking for permission. Shall I, shall I do? <sighs> okay. Because that's an example of Tamid loyalty. In 1999, uh, I, have, I have to bring that up. My wife sent it to me this morning because I didn't bring it along. It's an article I read in the Union Herald, Michigan. When I came to Andrews University in 1999, this story struck my heart. It's a story of Tamid loyalty. Sarah Stricker had a dream as she was in her freshman years at the University of Nebraska. In that dream, God told her that she will follow him. Short story. She was not a Christian at that time, but she was on the track and field team of the university. And she was scheduled to go to Austin, Texas for the national competition there in the track and field team. So she prayed that God will lead her. While she looked through the program book, a line catched caught her eye. It was a line about Michelle Bush. Michelle Bush was, or is, well, at that time was, a lady running the 400 meters almost faster than anybody else. Uh, excuse me, the 1,500 meters. And she was from UCLA, coming to the same meetings. And there in that line about the people competing there, they all had a, a phrase or two about themselves. It said, if the finals will be scheduled on Sabbath, Michelle will probably not run. You know the story behind that. So the meeting comes up. Sarah goes there. And uh, she is on the 4 by 800 relay team. And, oh, they... They, they didn't make it to the finals. But she watched as the 1,500-meter final was scheduled on Friday afternoon. And as it happened, sometimes like in ASI, things get a little bit longer. And sundown approached. And Michelle had to take a decision. The thing is that her team, the team competition, her team next day was the end, lost by two points the national championship. UCLA lost by two points that year. If she would run, and if she would run how she usually would run, she would easily make these two points. Later, she said that was the hardest decision in her life. 
not to run. On the way home to California, on the airplane, the whole team felt that it was a little bit more icier. And Michelle knew why. The team was very upset that she didn't run. Sarah noticed that. She went home, looked through her phone book to find where in her city there would be an Adventist church. She found, she found one. Next Sabbath, she was there and blessed the Adventist churches. I think it's everywhere the same. I believe it is. They welcome strangers to their church worship and to their meal, potluck or whatever you call that, after the church service. And there was a couple there. Now, the sermon was about Ellen White and prophecy. First sermon ever she heard. And Sarah had lots of questions. And these two, bless their soul, they explained to her what that means. And he, the man, offered her, well, why don't we have Bible studies? And you know, Sarah got baptized. She became a lawyer. She became a teacher. She led the Ashland SDA Elementary School and brought a group of scouts, I guess, or pathfinders to the Oshkosh meeting 1999, 19 years after the national competition in Texas. And you know what? Michelle Bush was a leader in her church, and she brought her group to Oshkosh. When Sarah Stricker saw that name, she said, well, who is that? And she went up there and said, Hi, I am Sarah. And because of you, I'm here. Nineteen years later, Michelle knew that her decision was not in vain. Not only for her life, of course she knew then too, but for eternity, for eternal life. Isn't that something? You never know in the decision you are what your loyal decision will have an effect, how God will use these decisions to have this wonderful tapestry of His to bring people together so that other decisions will be made. Please, stay loyal. Have Tamid loyalty. And you know, loyalty is a time thing. It's not something in an instant. It's not a second decision. It's a decision of life. Daniel did that. The effect on Daniel, and that's something very nice, I believe. That, that is our Lord. In chapter 12, our Lord is telling Daniel that he will rise. I mean, a personal promise of God, of Jesus Christ, that you will rise, a personal promise, that's something. Daniel got that because of his timid loyalty. May his example inspire you and me today that we are committed to our committed Lord Jesus Christ so that we will experience once that time when he will come to our door, when we are home, not in exile, and he will say, hi, I am Jesus. And we smile and we say, yes, we know, I know. You're my Lord and my Savior. Please come. Visit me in my dwelling place which you have prepared for me. Let us rise for prayer. Our heavenly high priest, if you would not have been committed to us, we would be lost, so lost. But you are, and that means everything in this universe. 
And we are here for you in our daily life to ever give you glory for what you have done and you are doing and you will do for us. Lord, may the poem of Theodore Monod be our words and I have to, to read that to you. And you know what he, what he wrote down. Oh, the bitter shame and sorrow that a time could ever be and I let the Savior's pity plead in vain and proudly answered all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me. I beheld him bleeding on the cursed tree, heard him pray, forgive them, Father, and my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day, his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, sweet and strong and, ah, so patient, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee, higher than the highest heavens, deeper than the deepest sea. Lord, thy love at last hath conquered. Grant me now my soul's petition none of self and all of thee. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.